Well, General Stewart, I see you are here at last. Those blood-curdling words were spoken by Robert E. Lee when Stewart finally arrived at Gettysburg in July 2nd, 1863. Where had he been? We'll find out when we talk today with J. David Petruzzi, author of Plenty of Blame to Go Around, Jeb Stewart's Controversial Ride to Gettysburg, on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, Tom Bodette from Motel 6 with a word for business travelers. Seems business has its own language these days, full of buzzwords like buzzword or net-net. And after a day spent whiteboarding a matrix of action items and deliverables, it's nice to know you can always outsource your accommodation needs to the nearest Motel 6. You'll get a clean, comfortable room for the lowest price, net-net, of any national chain, plus data ports and free local calls in case you tabled your discussion and need to reconvene offline. So you can think of Motel 6 as your total business travel solution provider, vis-a-vis cost-effective lodging alternatives for Q1 through Q4, I think. Just call 1-800-4-MOTEL-6 or visit motel6.com. I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll maintain the lighting device in its current state of illumination for you. Motel 6 and a core hotel. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with J. David Petruzzi, co-author of Plenty of Blame to Go Around, Jeb Stewart's controversial ride to Gettysburg. Well, those of you listening to the program know, I'm sure, the outlines of the story. Jeb Stewart was supposed to go with Lee or meet Lee in Pennsylvania during Lee's invasion of the North in 1863, but somehow things didn't work out that way. We were just discussing in our first segment how Lee's orders to Stuart were ambiguous. He could accompany Stuart and his cavalry, could accompany Lee, serve as the eyes and ears of the army, or they could separate and ride around the Union Army and meet up with Lee once they got up north into Pennsylvania. It's something Stuart had done twice to the Army of the Potomac already, ride completely around it, good for morale, embarrasses the enemy, maybe you pick up a few supplies on the way, break up the enemy's telegraph lines. Uh, There's a lot to be said for that strategy. But which one did Lee want? Which one should Stuart do? In our first segment, we found out that Stuart was just embarking to go uh, either around or perhaps through the middle of the Union Army, which is a much more diffuse body than you might imagine. If there's a corps in this town, a corps in another town, you can march between the two towns and never fight anybody. Uh, But in his first attempt to do that, he runs into uh, some of Hancock's Union soldiers, and there's a little skirmish on what should have been the first day of the raid. We got that far, and we're talking about whether that was the sort of thing that should have caused Stuart to turn back and uh, go along with Lee right then. So, uh, J.D., was Stuart, uh, what happened next? He, he, he encounters Union troops the first day out. Uh, we know he doesn't go back. What does he do? He uh, decides to continue forward. That uh, little skirmish at Hopewell Gap that, uh, as I mentioned, John Mosby, um, you know, possibly suspected that Stuart would turn around, uh, doesn't deter him. And as Stuart writes in his report, he, he basically allows um, you know, Hancock to get out of his way and, and continues on. 
um, of course, he's going to when when we mention you know what Lee's intentions are, uh, or, or what he feels a hindrance is that you know should possibly change uh, Stewart's decisions that he's going to be making along the way. He's going to encounter quite a few uh, between you know the skirmishes and uh, and the battles. None of which are going to, to uh, deter him at all. They're going to uh, make him adjust his decisions, uh, but none deter him from pressing on forward. So he's going to keep moving. Um, by the at the time he starts, where is the Army of the Potomac? Have they started crossing the Potomac River, chasing Lee's army? Where are they at that point? Well, he he breaks camp on June the twenty fourth at Salem, um, and by this time the the uh, the Union Army has not um, begun to move move forward or to cross the river yet. But one of the most important things I think that we do bring out in the book and that is always mentioned by those who are discussing the controversy, is that Stewart makes no attempt to notify Lee that Hooker's army um, you know, has begun to chase them, moving north or going across the river. One of the things that we found, and we have to credit this to a good friend of ours, uh, Tom Ryan, who is a, um, a historian in Delaware. Um, he's written several articles for Gettysburg Magazine, and one of his main concentrations is on intelligence, on both sides during the Gettysburg campaign. He's written a great five-part article series for Gettysburg Magazine. As he was reviewing the early manuscript for us, he contacted both Eric and I and pointed out something which has actually been in a published book ever since 1866. (laughs) So it's been out there since the year after the war. Uh, But historians up until this time have missed it, and Tom really caught this. Many of your listeners might be familiar with uh, John Beauchamp Jones, uh, a two-volume uh, publish um, uh, a two-volume uh, of his diary. He was a, a clerk in the Confederate War Department in Richmond who writes that on June the 27th, a dispatch was received from Jeb Stewart stating basically that Hooker's army has begun moving north. So apparently one of the, the couriers dispatched by Stewart uh, went to Richmond and gave this dispatch to the War Department there and uh, obviously because the dispatch is, is addressed to Lee, uh, was dispatched by courier to Lee's position, but the courier must have been intercepted, captured, killed, we just don't know. Uh, but fortunately, in Jones's diary is written the text of that dispatch that was sent out on the 27th. So it's, it's one piece of evidence that Stewart definitely tried to contact Lee and let him know that Hooker has begun moving north. And as I said, it's a really important piece of the evidence that historians have really missed, um, you know, until now. And we we're so glad that Tom brought this to our attention so that we could include it in the book. Very important part of the the puzzle. Is it um, does it say anything about Stewart's staff work that that this piece of evidence didn't get to uh, to Lee? That he didn't send multiple couriers or uh, whatever he did, he he got it to Richmond, but he didn't get it to right to Lee who needed it. Uh, what? And as we as we mentioned in the book, you know nobody's really sure. Maybe he did dispatch two couriers. Um, just so hard to tell. Uh, one of those, you know, one of those things I guess that happens in war. Uh, you know, if there was only one courier, he he didn't make it through, and obviously Lee, Lee never got the dispatch. Um, he may have sent a second. Perhaps they were both captured. You know, we just don't know. Obviously, the one to Richmond got through. But this is something too. Later on, after the battle, as uh, Charles Marshall, Lee's secretary is constantly hounding Stewart for his Gettysburg campaign report. And it took quite a while, you know, several months um, uh, 
In fact, I think it was actually really in, in 64 when, when Stewart composed his final Gettysburg campaign report and submitted it. Um, you know, Stewart kept bringing up the fact that I sent this dispatch, and Marshall said, well, we don't have it. So, you know, it makes all, all the more sense now. Folks who have really studied um, Stewart's ride in detail before will will often bring this up, but there was nothing, you know, to ever back it up. There was no dispatch ever found. So luckily, since it was in Jones' diary, you know, we were able to bring it to light in the book. Now, as Stewart then continues his march, he had some uh, unexpected fights. You, you mentioned the cavalry, really a patrol that he runs into, that thinking they're just running into some Confederate uh, bushwhackers, they, they charge. They don't know they're charging into Stewart's whole division. Right. Uh, quite a, a dramatic battle. Uh, Fairfax Courthouse, yes. And, and it slows up Stewart again. It, it, it's another delay. Correct. And then there was a, a, a scene I really liked. I, I found myself reading this more for the... Uh, for the strategic story of it, I was curious to know how Stewart had gotten where he was going. Uh, there was, uh, the, the book has excellent maps that help him get around. A map I found myself using that uh, listeners may not have access to easily, but uh, there's a map that accompanies a game based on the Gettysburg campaign, a, uh, a military game or war game published by Clash of Arms Games mm-hmm. called The Campaigns of Robert E. Lee. It has a really uh, attractive uh, small-scale map of, of all of uh, this area. I'm not sure it's the most accurate map ever made, but it does show a lot of the towns that you mentioned. You can really trace uh, hexagon by hexagon where, where Stuart's men were going. Well, you. so I was following it to see where they were going and how they were doing it, and I was really taken by the picture you draw, uh, the word picture of them crossing the Potomac River uh, which is is pretty high at the ford that they choose. Right. And uh, how did they get the ammunition across? That was a great moment, I thought. Yeah, it, uh, quite amazing. I, I'm 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 um, appreciative that you, you know you appreciate that word picture. We really did try to get that across. The the cavalrymen literally carried the ammunition, took it out of the limber chest, and carried it across the water. Uh, none of which you know was uh, anything that they really wanted to do. You know, many of them complained about it. Uh, but it was literally taken over piece by piece from one shore to the next. You, you can s- just imagine the ordnance sergeant standing there at the limber chest, and as each trooper rides up, here you get one right, one right. round shot. You get one spherical case. You get one canister. Um, Cavalrymen, you know, very likely did not see themselves in that role. <laughs> no, and, and, and they, they, and as they get across the other side, there's a guy with an open limber chest, and they put it in that one and put it back in, right? <laughs> and, and off they go, and they keep the ammunition dry as they go across. But the water was deep. He said it came up to the horses' backs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not an easy ford. No, very much. And anybody who has any experiences on on, on horses, uh, I have, you know, as, as a reenactor, I've done some reenacting on horseback, and rode some horses when I was younger. Uh, my uncle owned three horses. Uh, you know, before I was a teenager, uh, so I had some experience then. But uh, if you have any experience on horseback, you know it's not it's not like a car where you've got a gas pedal and a brake and a steering wheel. Mm. Many times, you know, those those beasts will do what they want to do, and I can just imagine the conditions: water coming up to the pommels of the saddle, you know, and, and just trying to do that, let alone carrying ordnance across, must have been quite a time. And, and when they towed the guns across, the the cannon were completely submerged. Mm-hmm. The submarine artillery going across the river. But given that there's no moving parts uh, to speak of, I guess you could do that. You couldn't take a modern uh, piece of ordnance. I, I, 
I shouldn't speak for that. Maybe you can, but uh, uh, that you could just dra- drag it across the bottom of the river, literally, right. and pull it back up the other side, let the water drain out, and it's ready to go. Right, and obviously this is the day before you know smoke, smokeless powder and enclosed cartridges, ammunition, uh, that type of thing, and um, it, it really, you know. Um, one thing we have to keep in mind is these artillerymen, whether they were horse artillery with the cavalry or with the infantry, uh, were extremely you know, conscientious about their artillery pieces. And, in fact, you'll read many accounts of those. You know, getting off the subject a little bit, when you read many of the accounts of artillerymen, they spent a lot of their downtime polishing those guns and going over them. Um, the more they shone, uh, you know, the happier they were. Those those pieces were, were like their babies. And I can just imagine what many of them thought as they're being dragged through the river. Of course, this wouldn't be the first time, and it certainly wouldn't be the last. Um, so they probably, although we don't have any accounts of it, I can just imagine there was some time spent after that river crossing, and these artillerymen going over those pieces, drying them out, cleaning them, and so forth. Now, when they get across, now they're in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, they continue their march. The Union Army is not far from them, uh, still between their army and, and Lee's army. And they, in, they they encounter a Union wagon train. Right. I think 125 wagons. Uh, it's it's a great uh, a great haul. Uh, lots of mules, lots of wagons, lots of contents in the wagons. Right. But this doesn't work very well for Stuart in the long run. And therein is is one of the major parts of the controversy. Um, many people will mention this capture of the wagon train and how much it may have slowed Stuart down. Uh, should he have taken it? Should he have just burned it? Where it was, and and not only that, but you know, not only does he take it, but over the ensuing several days, he continues to take it, um, and he admits, and we do make a point of this in the book. We, he does admit that it was an embarrassment to his column, but when you look at the 19th century definition of the word embarrass, it didn't have just the meaning that we think of today, where somebody might be ashamed of something or thought that they, you know, should have, should have, Stewart should maybe should have thought he should have done something different with the wagon train rather than taken along. What he meant by embarrass and the context in which it's written is to slow down. So he realized that the wagon slowed his column down, um, and that's what he was admitting to, not that he was embarrassed or ashamed that he did decide to take it along. So we, that's one thing that we do have to keep that in mind. Um, uh, so Lee also the, makes the same point. Yeah, the, the wagons are an encumbrance. Right, uh, they, right. They, they restrict him. Now, he continues on um, just to keep things flowing as our time goes by. Uh, he gets into uh, Maryland, Stuart does. There's a battle, a small battle at Westminster, uh, another one at Hanover in Pennsylvania. Uh, in each case, he's trying to get t- to link up with uh, the Confederate Army, but they are scattered all over southern Pennsylvania, not not where he expects them to be. And... Uh, these battles just slow him up further. Right. Eventually, uh, he, he he gets to York, Pennsylvania, for example, where he thought he'd run into Early's division, but they they were there, but they they've been gone for days they by the time. Cross paths. Yes. So uh, so he finds nothing. I thought it was interesting that Stuart, uh, in his own writing, complained several times that that Early didn't leave anyone. Uh, at York to tell him where where to look next. Correct. Uh, it, it seems to me that why that well of course he didn't because Early didn't expect that Stewart would necessarily show up there and Early didn't know where he was going next. Mm-hmm. He, he knew he was being called back west to join the main body of the army, 
But it, it just struck me as, I wouldn't say disingenuous on Stewart's part, but to blame early for not leaving a note. This kind of thing happens in my house all the time when one daughter's at soccer practice and one is going to music lesson and one of the parents is working late and you get home and there's nobody there and you just say, why didn't somebody leave a note? I don't know where the kids are. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Right, right. Um, but when when you're in that boat driving people around, you don't necessarily think, uh, uh, I better leave a note because I don't even know where I'm going to be in half an hour. Right. A lot of it's hindsight, yes. As a, as a father of a 17-year-old daughter myself, I know exactly what you're talking you about. You know what I mean. And, and they didn't have cell phones, obviously, uh, right. to try to recover from that confusion. But I guess I, as I read that, I didn't think Stewart had a good case, uh, that it was Early's fault for not leaving a note saying where he was. Right. Uh, a lot of hindsight on Stewart's part. Uh, now, from there, the Army retreats or, or the... the uh, Confederate infantry moves back west. Uh, some of them go through Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where on their way eventually toward Gettysburg, where the battle is going to be fought. Right. Stewart's army pursues, uh, uh, or follows the, the, the clues, basically guessing where where they might find the rest of their their fellow Confederates, and they end up going to Carlisle. And that I thought was an interesting battle uh, that you described. There are some Union soldiers who get to Carlisle first, mm-hmm. and we have another fight there. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want to ask you about is the the shelling of Carlisle. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, the Confederates send in a a white flag. Uh, the, it's one of Lee's relatives who carries it, isn't it? Right. Yes. Uh, who was that? Um, yes, a nephew. Um, last name of Lee, and I can't recall the first name. Fitz. Somebody in Fitz Lee's direct family, maybe. Right. right. Well, regardless, uh, he he goes up with a white flag. Henry Lee. Henry Lee. That's it. Thank yeah. you. And he he tells, and they they tell the people of Carlisle, um, surrender the town or we'll open fire. Mm-hmm. The people of Carlisle or the the defenders, uh, the soldiers in Carlisle, say, uh, you know, shall and be damned. Mm-hmm. And the battle is fought. That's now, a great line from Baldy Smith. <laughs> yeah, he he was not going to put up with that. Right. What struck me about this. And, and I, I don't, I don't want to say this in an accusatory tone, but I'm just curious for your perspective on it. Was that the in the description of this incident, and, and even the, the whole description of Stewart's campaign, perhaps because you have vicariously lived with Stewart through the archives for for all these months, uh, putting it together, there, there's a tone of sympathy, it, it seems to me, for Stewart's position. And the shelling of, of Carlisle in particular is presented as one of those things, well, they, they gave him a chance, they gave him a white flag, then there's the shelling and the description of the, uh, the women and children. Uh, from the Confederate point of view, they say it was heartrending to hear this sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you read a Confederate description of, say, Sherman at Atlanta, they don't say, oh, the Yankees were, the, it rent the Yankees' poor hearts to shell our women and children, those right. poor Yankees. Um, rather, the Yankees are the devils incarnate for daring to shell a civilian town or to try to order the women and children out after the battle. Uh, they're all bad. Here, the Confederates are doing it to the Yankees, and those poor Confederates, it tears their hearts. Um, what a, even to the this, point where the, isn't this a war crime, an atrocity on the part of Stuart's men? Yeah, you, even to the point where the citizens of Carlisle come up with that little rhyme, you know, that Fitzhugh Lee shelled in 1863. Um, and was repeated by school children for years afterwards. Very, very interesting. So that, that uh, it, it's a, a, quite a moment in, in the history of the war. Well, 
I hear this, the, the music again, so we're going to take another short break. Um, when we come back, I want to ask you about your conclusions, where you stand, uh, you and, and your co-author Eric Wittenberg, on the controversies, uh, on the controversy about Lee's, uh, Stewart's ride to Lee, and also uh, about your own activity as, as a Civil War cavalryman. So we'll talk about that when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 